Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I have a younger brother, Wes. He's seven years younger than me. Some of you uh, may know him. When he was like 12, he had a goal. Uh, we had built a treehouse. My dad and my older brother, who's four years older than me, and myself, we'd built this treehouse, and he wanted the treehouse to have electricity. He just thought that'd be kind of cool if he could have electric. So, because it got dark and it got creepy, and he wanted to sleep up there, but he couldn't bring himself to do it because it was far enough away from the house that he felt too alone. And so, lanterns or anything involving fire were a strict no from my mother. It's another story for another time, but electricity seemed like a good option. So he wired in outlet boxes and a light and a switch, and he used this old extension cord to get the distance from, he was going to go from the tree to the, to the summer kitchen with an extension cord, but he kind of dangled one out and ran out of room. And so he ran and went and found an extension cord and thought, I need power to this. So he plugged in the extension cord and he starts to drag it out through the grass. And when he gets to the treehouse, there's a female end hanging down. And he's got a female end in his hand. And he's like, well, this isn't going to work. And the only parts he had left were one male end. And in all of his wisdom, he thought, I'll put it on the one coming from the summer kitchen. So I'll have two male ends on this extension cord. So he called it up and he did all that. And he plugged it into the summer kitchen. And then he started out through the wet grass, uncoiling this extension cord. And every once in a while, the power, the energized ends of those, that male extension cord would brush his leg and he'd let out a yelp and it would, and it kind of hit him a few times. It would shock him and it shocked him into reality. And if you know him, it explains the twitchiness in him, I guess, if you do know him. Um, And you have to be wondering what does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 16? And the answer is nothing, really. I've just always wanted to tell that story. And now it's on YouTube. So thank you. You're welcome, Wes. Um, no, in all seriousness, Wes was playing with power. 110 volts of it. And as a kid, he really didn't know what he was playing with. He was innocent to its power. And he lost some innocence that day. It left an impression on him. And ironically, he would go on to start an IT company and do quite well. And I am convinced that we as Christians who are indwelt with the Spirit of God are similar. I mean, when you really boil down what it means to be a child of the King playing with his power, aren't we just kids playing with power at the end of the day? Even our best wisdom is foolishness to him, and we have access to this great power. Verse 4 or verse 7 of, of chapter 4 here kind of bears that out. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what? That the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And like Wes, we often find ourselves in circumstances that kind of shock us. They jar us into reality. The whole set of circumstances like the, wow, I didn't see that one coming, that we find ourselves in. You know, getting power to the treehouse took on a more serious tone with Wes when he realized the power he was playing with. He was literally shocked into the reality. But Wes had a goal. He knew that the view up there at night would just be awesome. And that's what drove him toward doing it. Oh, the things he could do up there with electricity. He was really excited. And so while he got shocked and hurt along the way for the love of the goal, he pressed on. 
And we, when we read Scripture, or we hear it preached, or we go through circumstances that are hard, those like this text describes that afflict or perplex or persecute or strike us down, we get shocked. And it's tempting for us to lose heart, to get into the mode of, man, if that's the Christian life, I'm not sure I'm up for it kind of situations. Or is there really God? This is what we're going to go through right now. They can drag us down. They can wear us out. Unless we have a bigger reality and a view to stare toward. A bigger and more grand view that our faith can propel us toward and put our current circumstances in the right perspective. And I want us to see and feel and know that this morning. And what I want us to see and feel and know is that when we are in Christ, we have access here and there along the way to that view, that view of the glories to come. That in the grand scheme of things, what we face that this text will later bear out are just light and momentary afflictions. They don't feel like it in, and I don't want to be trite but they really are light and momentary. And I want to explain something from this text, something that can be a bit shocking to you, but I want it to energize us. I believe that the gospel shines the brightest and God gets the maximum glory when we extend grace to people and to one another. Grace that he has first given us, his grace, supernatural grace, and when we do so, we do so as his followers. And who are we? We are his sons and daughters, his joint heirs and kin. My mother's from the South. Family is what that means if you're not from the South, all y'all. And we do that for the glory of him. We bear all those titles and we get to extend grace to one another and reflect his glory to other people. And we do it for him. And to help us drop into this text, we're parachuting kind of into the middle of this. The last time I preached, I worked through the passage that leads up to this. I think I started up in 312. And I wanted to encourage us not to lose heart or hope in uncertain times that we're in because of a couple of truths that we bore out of those. And those two are that first, God's gospel changes us. It makes us more like Jesus. And that God's gospel gives us ministry, and that is a ministry of mercy, Freely we've received mercy from God, and so freely we give it back out by simply being like Jesus. And being like Jesus fuels us, can fuel us, should fuel us to not lose heart. Paul's going to hang on to that, but he's going to press it further, and he's going to make it a little bit more weighty in our souls and energizing if we dwell on it by adding to the mercy. And so to the mercy he previously called us to, he's going to add to it grace. Not just mercy, but now grace. And they're different. It's not enough for us, according to Paul here, to simply be merciful. Think of mercy as withholding. To not give people something they don't deserve. That's a merciful act. I'm not going to do this to you. I'm going to withhold. 
Grace is bestowing. It is granting blessing when it is undeserved. I'm going to give you this. That's an altogether different action. It's one thing to say, I'm not going to seek revenge. It is another thing to bless your enemies while they curse you and persecute you. So there's a withholding and a bestowing. That's mercy and grace. And he's going to move us from this. Don't just stand back and withhold, but step in and be gracious, much like Jesus. And so he's going to call us to trust in the gospel, to be faithful ministers of mercy and givers of grace. As we keep our eyes focused on our eternal hope, which, of course, is Christ, our redeemer. And that's the key point. Don't just do this out of your own strength, but keep Christ in view. And so with these glimpses of glory in view, you have an outline here. We trust in and carry the death of Christ, verses 7 through 12. And we believe in and offer the grace of Christ, verses 13 through 16. And there is a, the big idea there is when we extend grace, we get a glimpse of glory. And I think it is in those moment that we, moments that we get a feeling of what it was like for Christ to die in our place and grant us blessing because it cost us something. Grace is not cheap. It's always expensive. And so point one, with glory in view, we trust in and carry the death of Christ. And this can feel a little bit like the energized extension cord kind of brushing your leg in wet grass. It's a little bit hard to read, if we're honest, if we read this section here. Not verse seven. I mean, verse seven is kind of cool. Jars of clay. We've got access to this surpassing power. We're holding the treasure of the gospel. That's got a real nice ring to it. I mean, I get that we're clay pots, but we hold the gospel, and that gospel has great power, so we can kind of talk ourselves into that one. We even work on our pots a lot. We like to polish them up, but the reality here is is that they're cracked, and that's where the light shines through, so let your weaknesses show. We like our pots. We like to keep those clean, but then we read on. What, What are these clay pots subjected to? We see words like afflicted and perplexed, and persecuted, and struck down. And if you go back to the original language, they don't get a lot nicer sounding. They sound a little more intense. They get harder to accept. Afflicted literally means to be squeezed or compressed, crowded. Think overwhelmed mentally or physically. Maybe the current circumstances are high pressure for you, and you feel the push from all the sides. You don't really have anywhere to turn. You've heard hard words from well-meaning folks, words like cancer or another acronym that you had to go home and look up and then you were regretting that you did. Or there's been a complication. Or we think we got it all. Or we should probably just call hospice. Perplexed. To be without means mentally or physically. Or to hesitate or stand in doubt. Maybe you want to believe more deeply in this thing called Christianity. You really do. But the scriptures say such hard things. And the Christians you know do such dumb things. You just feel like you don't have enough information to go on in your walk. It doesn't make sense. You're just without means. You're perplexed or persecuted. Persecuted literally means to be pursued eagerly, to be sought after, hunted like prey. 
maybe you've shared the gospel with folks you know, and they've now turned that into a means of mocking you. You're the Christian at the workplace, or maybe you've become the new butt of all the office jokes, and you're an easy target now. And you can see the next one coming, but you can't get out of the way fast enough. And maybe you're just too tired to do so, or you're well aware of your idiosyncrasies. But man, do they always have to be out there for everyone to always see all the time. Why am I the target? Struck down literally means to be thrown or cast down. Also used, a term used to lay a foundation. You throw down or cast down a foundation. Hard. There's nowhere else for it to go. It lays right there. That's what is struck down. Maybe you feel as if all your circumstances or other people want to do is to bury you and build their success on your work. As long as they can keep your work hidden, you feel discarded. Maybe you were victimized as a kid or you still are being victimized. You want to believe you have value, but people around you that are supposed to be protecting you and telling you you have value aren't doing that, and so you're questioning it. You feel powerless, worthless, or helpless, empty, that kind of struck down. And these words describe all all things that all of us in this room either have, are, or will feel at some level, at some point in our lives. They are part and parcel of what it means to be living in a fallen world that is not yet glorified and redeemed. They make you want us, they make us want to give up or to give in. And now for the brush of the extension cord, if it's not heavy enough, the more we read our scriptures, we also know that they are part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. In this world, he said, you will have trouble. Don't be overwhelmed because I've overcome the world, but you will have trouble. But aren't we freshly shocked every time we find it? We don't like that thought. We're tempted to gloss it over with a self-centered view of verse 7. I'm a clay pot holding cool power. You know that power of positive thinking stuff? Just seems to always have been around this self-centered thinking versus Jesus or gospel-centered thinking. And I want to move us away from that self-centered view to a gospel-centered view. And so I want to encourage you, but not in some sort of rah-rah, cheerleading way, but I want to run through this list of words that Paul uses here. And I want to add the second part of the couplet. And the couplet are, is we're afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not, it's the but-nots at the other part of that half. And I want to put, instead of you thinking about yourself when you read that passage, I am this, but not that. Let's put Jesus there first. I'm hoping you feel the same emotion and gratitude that I did when I prepped for this sermon. Afflicted, to be squeezed or compressed, crowded, overwhelmed mentally or physically, and crushed. Crushed means to be cooped up or held in straits, immobile. Think Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? He said, Father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, please take it. And what happened? Evil men came and they nailed him to a cross. Not just cooped up, 
fixed, nailed in place for all the world to see. It is why Isaiah can say, surely he has borne our afflictions years before it coming when he saw that and the Lord revealed it to him. Persecuted and forsaken, to be eagerly pursued to the point of having no one left and perplexed and driven to despair, to be without means mentally or physically, to hesitate or stand in the utmost despair and and in doubt. And from the cross of Christ, what do we hear him say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Alone he hung on the cross. Struck down and destroyed, thrown or cast down, also used for a foundation, killed, means what it says. Isaiah 53 says it well when he describes the cross in advance of it happening, saying, he poured out his soul to death. And these are small glimpses, and they give us glimmers of the depths of our gospel. What came from those depths? A lot. But for starters, when you read this passage, we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Have you considered that when you are in Christ, you don't get the second half of those couplets? It is possible to be afflicted and not crushed because Jesus was for you. Because Jesus was crushed, forsaken, and destroyed, we don't have to be. Substitutionary atonement is what that's a fancy term for. In our place, he stood. That's the, the, if, if there is no gospel, this can't be true. We're left with ourselves, and we don't have ourselves. We have Jesus, and he has us. Because he was, I don't have to be this. I am not this. That's a pretty big glimmer. That's a pretty cool view. There are 7.753 billion people on the planet, according to the highly accurate Google source. I have to quote it. I cite it, I guess. Uh, But we have to count dead people, too. Everyone that's lived, they think that's about 100.8 billion. Have you considered that when you place your faith in Christ, or you consider that, is there a God and should I submit my life to him? Does he have a way for me to explain suffering and to be reconciled to him? Because I know in my soul, I'm at odds with him. The kind of power you're playing with the kind of power you have access to is power sufficient to bear all the grief ever known, all the sorrow ever known of 100.8 billion people and counting. He was willingly pierced for your transgression. And guess what? The, will, the, the offering was acceptable to the Father. He was pleased to crush him. It wasn't because he thought it was fun. It was because it was enough for him to be satisfied. He was pleased. 
And so what does it mean if you're in Christ? It means that you are accepted. He was crushed for your iniquities, and yet he could carry that grief and sorrow. Enough for if they all claimed him and were called to him, 100.8 billion people. That's the kind of power. And so if you are in Christ by faith this morning, his chastisement has brought you peace with God. What does that mean? It means that you are not just accepted, you are also God's friend. He likes you. And he enjoys enjoying you. He doesn't tolerate you. He loves you. His wounds healed you. What's that mean? It means that you are whole. You don't have to be broken. You can be complete in him. You're not viewed as broken by the one audience that matters, and that's the God of heaven. His soul made an offering for your guilt. What's that mean? It means that you're not just accepted. You're not just his friend. You're not just whole. You're not just not viewed as broken. You're forgiven. You can stand blameless before him. There's a nearness to a relationship that he wants us to call, to call us to. It's what Paul is driving us to. Like, in Christ, we are these things. And what does he say then? So what's a little suffering in the face of so great a salvation? What's a little bit along the way? It's why later on he'll say it's light and momentary afflictions. Have you read the laundry list of things Paul went through? Shipwrecked, beaten by rods, like thrown off a cliff. Like, read what happened to him. And he could truly say with joy in his soul, This is light and momentary. Why? Because these truths hold bedrock foundationally true all the time. They're never out of season. And so, the only right response to this kind of salvation is true and deep allegiance to our Savior, King Jesus Christ. Faith first, then obedience. To the extreme, that he pushes us to, of giving grace to other people. It's the second point. You see these glimmers that he gives us. He's like, if you recognize that you can be this but not that, and it is Christ that has bought that for you, that these are these glimmers of glory, when when you slam all those glimmers of glory together, they propel us forward to what? believe in and offer the grace of Christ. This text says we are all, we're, we're all calling, constantly carrying the death of Christ with us. But then right on the heels of that, Paul says, but we're also carrying his life. Don't just, don't just think death, think life as well. And it sounds right. We can read these verses quickly and we can kind of treat them like a cheerleading session. And they are kind of that, but they're so much more. What Paul is really saying here is that our gospel does not stop with Jesus dying and paying our sin debt. Necessary, absolutely necessary. Without that, no gospel. That's what makes a relationship with the holy God possible. But it continues on with the resurrection, which grants us a glorious inheritance with the Father. His life now, life abundant, joy dead Jesus does us no eternal good. We need both his death and his life to be true. And so as we live now on this side of glory, we need both to be true to live well. We don't just hunker down and hope it gets better. We can live with joy now in the face of hard circumstances. We don't have to be struck down because one was struck down for us. 
We want to be worthy of the calling set before us. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we aren't here just to die well, but to live well as well. And we can do that when we know and trust in both Jesus' death and life. Because when those are both true for us deeply in our souls, it is truly then that we can say it is well with my soul. And we can say that regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in or that we read about that other churches in Sudan and Somalia and the world over find themselves in, they can sing the hymn and mean it. Probably with more depth than we can here complaining with our mouths full all the time. It is, is it well with your soul? And it sounds so glorious and neat for us to say it just like that in this room when it's warm, there's no threat of harm. But that's not the context nor the picture that Paul is painting here because he quotes Psalm 116.10. If your, your Bible sometimes will brag, like pull in an indent, and you'll see a little indentation if your Bible does that. And that's Psalm 116.10. Psalm 116 is written by a man who's pretty sure he's about to die. But he's okay with it because he says later in the psalm, the precious in the sight are the death of your saints. We like to throw that verse around. But how does that psalm end? It starts, Psalm 116 starts with, I think I'm going to die. Everyone around me hates me. I know that if I die, it's to your glory. Praise God. That's how Psalm 116 goes. Because he knows the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116 knows that his dying will prove a bigger point and bear a weightier glory than fighting to live. For him, in that circumstances, I will not superimpose that on yours. So this text is not just calling us to extend grace some of the time. It is calling us to display the life of Christ through our actions while we suffer wrong, perhaps even to the point of dying while simultaneously offering the grace of Christ, think sharing the gospel, to those who wrong us to the point of that dying. That kind of the extension of grace cannot be faked. It's supernatural. It can't come from our flesh. It can only come from the Lord himself. And guess what? We have him and he has us. We have all we need. And yes, it's extending grace is hard on the flesh and it wears on your soul. It is difficult to do. We have a lot of instances in the Old Testament of God himself telling Moses, I've kind of had it with these people. Like he authored grace and he's having the conversation. I'm like, I'm thankful that God gives us those glimpses. He's like, I think I'm done. Moses is like, no, you got to be, a, you know, your word. Remember, you're, there's no shadow of turning in you. And it wasn't that God forgot. God's being honest. This is hard. And so grace is expensive to extend. And yet he did. And I'm so thankful that he did. And he didn't change or morph or change the rules on us. God doesn't change the rules on us. Extending grace is so hard to do. And you know how hard it is to do? It is so hard to do that it took Jesus dying to make it possible for us to even to begin to do it, for it to have any eternal value. Because when we extend grace for his glory, it has eternal value. But if we extend grace because we want the glory, it has no value. It just burns up. It doesn't even, it's, it's, a, it's a worthless work. 
He had to die and be resurrected. We need his death and his life to be able to extend grace well. God had to sacrifice his own son to enable us to truly extend any kind of meaningful grace. It's that hard. And it's that expensive. But it's also that glorious. Because of the view that it affords us when we do it. If you want people around you to be thankful and give glory to God, then extend them grace for the glory of God. Give them something they don't deserve. Maybe less words. Patience. The fruit of the Spirit list I'm not going to try. I'll miss one and offend it. So love, joy, peace, patience. Said I wasn't going to try. You know what it says at the end of those? Against such, there is no law. They're never illegal, ever. Isn't that hard to do? Whew. It sounds so clean and sterile, but that's really hard to do when your toddler has done it a hundred times today. How, how do you do that? Or they just keep making the same mistakes. Or they're going to hurt me or come at me. What do I, how do I extend grace in that moment? It's complicated. It's prickly. It takes a lot of prayer. I'm not saying it's easy and simple. I'm just saying that here we see that when we extend grace, we get glimpses of glory. What it means is that when we're sharing the gospel with someone, we're not just doing something that God wants us to do. We want them to, be, to experience the grace of God. I have always wrestled in my soul with evangelism doing it because I'm always like, I feel like I'm just checking off a box. If I can bear my soul a little bit here. But when you view it as like, no, I want them to experience the grace that I've experienced. It's a game changer. It's not something that I do to feel better about my day. It's that I want you to be with me in glory. That would be really cool. Even if the other person doesn't want it or the other person is harming me or coming at me, I know the only way for that person to not want to harm me or come at me would be if they knew Jesus. They wouldn't do that anymore. Or they'd do it less, hopefully. That's called sanctification not being the man I used to be. It's that simple. And so when I have glory in mind, sharing the gospel changes things. It changes how we share the gospel, why we share the gospel, and the depth to which we share it. Because the last thing a person needs when they're coming at you is the gospel in your mind, in your flesh. And the last thing you and I needed when scripture says we were his enemy and running away from him was him to reach out and grab us and turn us and say, look at me in my glory. And we saw him as he was. And we fell to our faces in worship and said, you are my only hope of salvation. While we were his enemy, Christ died for us. We can, by faith, not just be like Jesus. We can also be for Jesus. And we can, as we give ourselves more fully to carrying the death of Christ, this message of the, God, the cross, 
also be able to manifest the life of Christ. We get to live out what that message of the cross has done for us and how it has changed us and made us not look like the rest of the world. Something's different about those people they would say about Christians, and they still say that. So that we can echo verses 17 and 18 here and mean it. Listen to these. We'll start in 16. So we do not lose heart. Our outer self, our flesh, is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. Sanctification. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are we staring at? What consumes your time? What do you worry about? What do you get angry about? Take the fruit of the spirit list, write their opposite, and say, what causes this within me? And it's going to be everything that doesn't matter that's going to burn up. All this stuff that over here, this matters. I want more of that view in 2022 and beyond. I do. And I don't mean that in a soft, evangelical, name it, claim it kind of way. I mean it deeply. I want more of that kind of view. Because I think we're in times when the enemy, Satan, is working really hard to turn us on each other. The prevalence of a culture of suspicion in our country, our county, our homes, and our own soul across the board right now is astounding and alarming to me. We just feel like we can't trust anyone. I'm not going to believe you until you just totally prove it. It's not from the Lord. I, I think it is in all of us more than we want to admit. The last two to whatever years have been hard on us, and I think they'll ripple for a while. They've been a grace. Certainly good things have come out of the hardship we've seen. And I think we can fight the ground lost by surrendering to the gospel to the ends of extending grace to one another for the goal of thanksgiving and fellowship and glory to God. And I'll bear my soul a little bit more than I have already uh, today. I feel like a hypocrite even saying what I've said. As I studied this passage, uh, I wanted to preach it less and less. It was like, no. I usually at points during sermon prep feel strong emotion, and this time was more than usual. Some feelings of conviction, usually that's where the strong emotion will come around. But what was so incredibly life-giving to me was to how grateful my soul felt to just take time and look into the depths that Christ went to to die for me so that I can live more fully now. If you felt like a hypocrite nodding along with me in the sermon flow, you're in good company. None of us have arrived. I think that's the biggest kickback people give to the gospel. Well, the church is full of hypocrites, and my answer is yes, 
You're right. If we were not all hypocrites, we would all be Jesus. And there's only one of him. So join us. We're going to work at being less hypocrites together. Like, can we do that with grace? So easy to say and so hard to do because our feelings are personal to us. You know how to fight hypocrisy? That hypocritical hypocrisy, if you don't know, is saying one thing and doing another. If you look good, you do what you want. Or you look bad, do good things. It's hypocrisy. It's, it's perverted. It doesn't fit together. Oil and water. You want to know how to fight that? Don't work harder at doing gooder. It don't work. It just doesn't. Because it is by grace that you are saved, not faith. By faith, not works. Because why? Someone would boast. Confess it. Tell it to the Lord. Tell it to your spouse. Tell it to people around you. And I'm confessing to you, all of you right now, that I want to grow in the area of extending grace. If I have learned anything about my soul and the contours of my soul in the last two to three years of COVID and rough election cycle and, 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 light momentary afflictions, they have shown me that I am very quick to judge. I want to be judge and jury. We can paste Jesus on it. Well, I'm doing it for the church, or I need to stay ahead of this, or, you know, criticism is not a spiritual gift. The fruit of the Spirit is a spiritual gift. And do we want to grow in that? I've been well made aware of my lack of grace sometimes while also simultaneously and in a soul thrilling way been made well aware of the endless supply of grace to be had in the gospel we cannot exhaust the grace of god and every day we get new mercy not recycled new and it's as easy and hard as letting, go of, as letting go of your life. And I think we underestimate the power that could be unleashed in our communities, in our homes, in our nation, and in the world if we could let go of that. Not just being like Jesus, but being for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you're good and you're gracious. And you call us to things that only you can do in us. And so this is one of those things this morning. Lord, we carry around with us the story and the reality of your death, but we also carry with us the story and reality of your life. And people see that when we extend grace to one another, when we love each other and love your people, or love your people that we don't even know if they're your people yet. We just want to love well. And so, Lord, we're asking you to do a work in us that only you can do. And the beauty is, your word says you want to do it in us. We're not asking you to do something that you would do begrudgingly. You long for this. Help us to examine our own lives, to be personal, and do the hard work of 
thinking and deeply and confessing and repenting and turning from sin and becoming more like Jesus so that we can tell more people about him so that they can be our brothers and sisters and we can experience your grace together for your glory. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.